Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This is a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, sponsored by Christie's Education New York, where art history meets the art market. This conversation took place at Christie's Education in New York in early December, just after Art Basel in Miami Beach. Let's let Veronique Schengen-Burke introduce the second half of the conversation as we move on to the auction houses. What I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about is, is indeed trying to find a, a kind of a, a way to tie what we've experienced at the fairs, not just the main fair, but the satellite also, and what we've experienced in the last um, November seasons, and, and, and maybe ask you, Marion, what do you think about the strategy of the two houses, and especially uh, the new development within Sotheby's, um, trying to add rosters of different services to, their, uh, to, to, to what they can offer their clients, which might help us also to talk a little bit about what Judd was talking about, this idea of maybe more privacy and, and the private sale versus the auctions. But um, can you uh, maybe recap for the audience and, and, and let's... I, I can guess. I don't want to suggest We want to guess yeah. how okay. We, we, we really want to guess too. I, I, I don't want to suggest that I have even remotely any sort of actual <laughs> knowledge of what their strategy is. <laughs> but, I, but I will say, say this. There is a broad overarching idea uh, coming out of Sotheby's of turning it into a, a broader service-oriented organization. That was the whole uh, packaging around the acquisition of art agency partners, um, even though that was clearly to gain access to, to uh, <laughs> talent and do some other things. But uh, even beyond that, there is a, a very sensible idea. I mean, one of the problems with the art market um, is that, as you said, when people become more sophisticated, both private sales and in auctions, you're either with the competition that's taking place, it puts pressure on the margins that you can make. Uh, you can always get another deal across town if you've got something really great. Uh, uh, you can always decide to uh, sell it privately. So, and as, as the totals come down, since this is a percentage-based uh, uh, business, the revenue comes down as the totals c c come down. So logically, you want to find other ways to make money that aren't dependent upon, presuming we reach the max of what sales could be. You know, maybe, maybe some other time, but I think we can be reasonably confident that they gave it a hell of a run, and in 14 and 15, we saw pretty much everything that could be achieved at, at auction, and no stone was left unturned uh, at all. So uh, uh, Sotheby's seems to be taking this approach. What else can we do to have relationships with our clients? Uh, uh, it, it's also interesting, by the way, that um, uh, Art Basel is doing something similar. What else can we do with our expertise and get into other uh, businesses? And uh, obviously, from your anecdote, how else can we get a hold of those clients? Because, you know, look, for, for everyone, dealers and the auction houses, the buyers are the thing that's of value. Mm -hmm. You can figure out what art to get to them, but the buyers are more valuable than the, the art itself. H having said all of that, you know, so Sotheby's, just to finish that thought, 
has this advisory business, has the auction transaction business, private and uh, public sales, and it has a financing uh, uh, business, uh, which. Yeah, they just. Well, I did, well, so, so I was. There, here's what I wanted to, did want to say. Or, about this. Orion. I, I would not make too much of their buying Mamoses or having Orion uh, come and work there. Those are, they're they're not even acquisitions. I mean, I, I don't think the CFO made a joke about um, Mamoses, and uh, certainly it seems like this that they're more like you can come and set up shop here. It probably makes sense for them to to do it. I I, I suspect it will be much more of a. Uh, closer to what the art agency people do. Hey, you own this work of art, let's help you restore it, figure out uh, what the problems are with it, than it is on the authenticity uh, side of it. At least just in that one comment they said about scouting real estate in New York uh, and London, which just means it's more of a client-facing uh, 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 thing. But maybe it is to sort of uh, build all of that. But you know, these are, these are still, they're just trying to figure out where this business can go. They're not major, I mean, our agency partners is a major acquisition. Mm -hmm. Cost them a lot of money. It seems to be paying off uh, uh, for them at all, all. Phillips has a very different sort of strategy, sort of taking one slice of the market. And it should be pointed out very quietly, Christie's over the last year, year and a half, has done a great deal to constrain or, or reduce its costs. Uh, they, they haven't made a big deal out of it but they've been focusing on their business that way. So I think all three auction houses are very aware that whatever level we reached was either not sustainable or you had to prepare for uh, uh, it coming down a little and have taken uh, actions to look for it with whatever their, their strategy uh, is. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't really get Sotheby's at all, but um, I think a lot of what they're doing is just no, I wouldn't say wasting mo money, but the acquisition of this um, Orion, Orion, May Moses. First. Oh, May May Moses, the uh, the index. And, and you know, I mean, you don't. I mean, the kind of things that they're trying to sell now that they used to provide for free, like the mm -hmm. best expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, you could get Joanne Westfall to talk to you about Gerhard Richter for free. And now, supposedly, if you're not grandfathered into that, you supposedly have to pay art agency partners some kind of fee to get any kind of information, which is ridiculous. But anyway, um, I think the most interesting in the last year is finally it appears and who knows but that phillips is finally getting some traction mm -hmm. from this huge you know talent poaching thing they've been on and getting all this uh, top end expertise and and people that have you know that are rainmakers from both christies and sotheby's and i mean they did have their first well, one of their first $100 million sales this time, and they had a sale in Hong Kong. So they're, you know, they are scratching away, not to take over, not to approach the duopoly, because they don't have that kind of infrastructure. And I don't think they want that kind mm -hmm. of infrastructure. But they are, you know, more nimble, and the fact that they could get 
um, the Paul Allen Richter and have it on their cover lot was, I thought was a, you know, a pretty good marker for them. Didn't do that well, but you know, then again, Richter photo paintings aren't mm -hmm. the, what people are the way they used to be. That, yeah. Those were the you know key works from the '60s. Those were the monster mm -hmm. things. But anyway, now it's you know the it's squeegee 5, stuff. abstract mm -hmm. paintings. From each year, 5,000. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so we're thinking that basically these moves are more from Phillips or Christie's or Sotheby's are ways to kind of tackle the issue of maybe um, a market that is kind of correcting itself and maybe going into something. So it's it's about trying to find what where how to find a sustainable model to continue. Uh, it's important to have the context. When uh, Christie's launched this assault on the highest peak and you know produced extraordinary results, extraordinary works of art to come to, to auction, they were doing it because they were apparently, again, you know, this is looking at it from the outside and little clues here and there, mm -hmm. trying to expand the rest of the business. Part of the theory seems to have been if we push the top of the art market, the rest of the art market will follow and we'll move that stuff online and we'll have a whole new business. That didn't happen. So in some ways we're dealing with the fallout of a, a strategy that pushed the others in other directions. Now the baton is sort of being passed from Christie's driving the strategy to Sotheby's driving the strategy, and they may be no more successful, they may be uh, much more successful. And then we've got this interesting thing of now a serious or a more serious third player. I do, you know, it's kind of, I, I was a little disappointed this uh, November. The day sale at Phillips is the thing that changed the most. Uh, it was now like a day sale at, at everywhere else instead of you know this mart of young artists who were maybe selling for the first time or maybe people were you know uh, uh, clearing their closets or whatever else it uh, was and that was always I mean it was always odd but it was also kind of interesting and exciting and I, I, I unexpectedly missed it you know I don't think there really is a you know quote unquote sustainable model for the auction Mm -hmm. Because they just, you know, they're chasing mainly, you know, these ultra-rich people around the world, and it's very expensive to do that. And uh, they keep giving away, you know, enhanced hammer, you know, in order to get any kind of decent property. They're making deals with with a third party that takes more of any chance of an upside. So, and again, it's very hard to measure. Well, you. Sotheby's, which is the only of the trio that's publicly traded, that you can actually see some sort of profit and loss and be more uh, capable. You can read further into the documents that they have to provide. But it, you know, it's a complete mystery in terms of the state of, you know, that Christie's releases numbers and auctions and private sales, but that's about it. So anyway, I think it's, it's a, uh, you know, that they have to uh, probably, you know, eliminate department or, you know, but Christie's changing and melding mm -hmm. departments mm -hmm. and Everything cloistered, whatever, cloistered. Claim, you know, just mm -hmm. 
well, let's try this. Let's kick out yeah. the two, you know, these old master guys and uh, bring in this guy. And anyway, I, I think it's uh, it was pretty confusing. In terms of I think it is pretty confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It's certainly not the kind of service industry where, you know, people came in. It, 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 when it becomes such a, when the purpose becomes making so much money from the auction house, you also undermine this kind of idea of what an auction house is, which is just basically uh, a middle person between a consigner and, and a collector. It's, it's wanting to, to do more with that that creates a, a difficult problem in a certain way. This podcast is sponsored by Christie's Education New York. Christie's Education offers master's degrees and continuing education programs on all aspects of art history, art business, and the art market. Programs emphasize the importance of direct contact with original works of art and interaction with a network of artists and professionals to enhance students' exploration of the art world. Contact newyork at christies.edu to schedule a meeting with an admissions counselor or faculty member or to tour the facilities. For details on their master's degree programs and for gainful employment information, visit christies.edu. Well, I, I did want to say that, you know, originally it was really between dealers, that yeah. the auctions were a way for dealers to distribute work in a fair price, and it was a good business or, you know, uh, estates and what, what, what not, things that were hard to price, an auction is a way you get a price because no one really knows until people show up and say, uh, well, they'll pay for it. Over the last 15 years, the auction houses went uh, uh, really into being retail organizations, and they pushed that very far. And I think if this is, what we're seeing now is not the failure of auction houses so much as the result of their success. They're bigger than they ever were. The volume is larger. They're dealing with the collectors uh, directly in a way that they, they really didn't do uh, until the 21st century. And now you know, they have this sort of grip on it. But the thing that they haven't done, and this hasn't traditionally been their role, is figure out how to generate demand. The marketing side of it has always been marketing to sort of the obvious of uh, things you knew. You know, you, you, this is a great example of a Picasso. I don't have to tell you why Picasso is important. And then, you know, somewhere in the last 10 years, the prices themselves became marketing. So it was kind of a, the, when someone saw something sell for a lot of money, everyone uh, sat up and noticed and said, well, I need to learn more about, uh, about this. Without that, uh, tool, they haven't. I don't, I mean, this is not. It's their fault. Nobody knows what the means is, and that's part of the problem we're seeing with the so-called disruption of online sales. They're they're no better at explaining to someone why they should care about this artist they've never heard of, which sort of gets us back to the art fairs. That's where what the art fairs have gotten to be relatively good at, or at least venues for. Having that kind of kind of doing that kind of marketing, um, I think it's just for the auction houses to thrive. They need to to create new areas of uh, of business. And uh, since contemporary art, we haven't seen another category that's uh, taken off. And certainly, we never saw a category take off like contemporary art's taken off. Thank you, Marisa, for opening the discussion. Otherwise, I'll monopolize our hostess for over for 
right. No, um, besides collecting categories to me, which seems a little bit of a dead end in terms of, or you know, making markets for certain artists or certain categories, it seems to me that what Sotheby's is trying to do, and this goes to the question of what is the future of these auction houses, is that auctions just, they're, you know, they're just not enough anymore, and that they're providing these services, which traditionally have either been outsourced or services that um, make them 365 days a year much more relevant, even when collecting things outside of the house or even the major houses. So it seems to me it's a little bit of a shift towards a m more advisory, you know, all year round advisory and using, you know, I don't even know who uses Moses and May, but that as being a kind of like, you know, a visual example of ways in which we can service you, you know, in, in this other way. And then, you know, Jamie Martin's work, that is authenticity. I mean, it's not just, he really is a, you know, he's an, he doesn't say if it's authentic, but he certainly says if it's fake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you but, know? but, but it, that's not about connoisseurship. Though. Absolutely I mean, not, he's not a connoisseur, but it's, it's an easy read for yeah. collectors interested in the art world of validation, yeah. of authenticity, if not authenticity. Yeah, I mean, I think something like, I mean, I think it's more for, you know, publicity yeah. purposes or, you know, the coming off the, the star of the Nodler trial. And, um, but I, there is something about a lot of this discussion or it sounds to me more and more like the late and perhaps great A. Alfred Taubman, who invented this whole post just straight auctions that he wanted, you know, that building on York Avenue to become like a kind of street. Like a, he wanted galleries, he wanted art galleries in there, he wanted action, you know, all the time. And uh, it's true that, you know, there's simply not enough, even though there, are, there seem to be a lot of auctions, but it's quite seasonal. And a lot of time they're just, you know, renting these insanely expensive spaces that we're in right now um, to, you know, to have these kind of events that, you know, they could, like museums, they're always having dinner parties with, you know, renting out the spaces. but. Um, Maybe that's next. Who knows? Maybe it's already going on. I, but, um, I, I think it's funny to think of uh, Taubman as being a, a man ahead of his time in that uh, uh, sense, because you know he he wanted to do a lot of these things. He was you know accused of doing uh, them uh, or pushing them too too far. But the whole rest of the art world has grown so dramatically around him or around that period. That were now, you know, if you if you wanted to create the auction schedule today from you know nothing, you would not create the one we have now, right? It, you know, especially now that you know these used to be separate sales in London and New York. Now they have a massive overlap in their uh, buying clientele and and all, and so they're really it's scheduling the same sale in a different location. So having a sale in May and June doesn't make that much sense. Uh, and I think there is, I think, Mercy, your point about wanting to rationalize the cal calendar 
I mean, for a while, uh, Christie's had taken first open as the way to do it, right? And expanded the number of first open sales. And it was going really well, uh, and then sort of stopped. Uh, and I think this figuring out how to do the right, you know, register of emphasis, smaller sale, big sale, you know, that works so that you can get the things sold in the right place at the right time, satisfy the client, more importantly, satisfy the market, right? You know, as soon as the sale goes well, there's, with luck, there's a, a lot of disappointed underbidders who you now want to get them their X or Y work uh, either as soon as possible or with the right amount of time. Uh, and so I think that is, it's, we're in the sort of shifting gears, digesting all of this stuff that's happened over the last whatever periodization you want to do it, just since the financial crisis is probably a good enough uh, one since so much has changed about the business just in these last uh, uh, six or seven years. Uh, and I think like everything else, everyone sort of stumbles around groping at what they can. I, I mean, I am sure they bought, uh, Sotheby's bought May Moses because they could. I, it was it was there. Uh, uh, Moses, uh, uh, you know, is retiring. You know, they could get a little of the data, and I'm I'm sure it wasn't you know uh, going to get um, anyone in trouble for making uh, the acquisition if it if it didn't wor work out. Uh, and I think the same thing with with Jamie Martin. You know, it it truly didn't cost them a lot of money to figure out. Maybe authenticity is a big part of our business. Maybe just the materials research and being able to provide for your customers makes them more loyal to you. I mean, this is the, their loan business is structured to help get works to sell, not to maximize the amount of money they make from making uh, loans. Uh, the same thing could be said uh, of this. I mean, I, I, I do think it is, we've grown up in this world where there's been this intense competition between two auction houses. And I'm not sure that's gonna be the thing going forward. I think there's gonna be lots of different options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, think, I think people are gonna try, try and figure it out. Uh, I think that'll be the interesting and maybe messy thing over the next few years. Uh, just presume that the, the art market stays relatively stable around here or is punctuated, you know, going up and down, a good season, a bad, bad season, we'll see them looking for whatever the next uh, uh, thing is. Or if the ownership of Sotheby's and Christie's changes, too, that, that's another... Yeah, that will be another... Uh, especially Sotheby's with their biggest uh, we have three shareholder... Three um, years on this? Uh, um, <laughs> the uh, Part of the, again, unintended consequences of all of this is uh, because of the problems with the Taubman sale, Sotheby's stock uh, took a dramatic fall. It became an opportunity for people who might not have uh, seen it as an opportunity. And the um, owners of China Guardian took a 13.5%, which will rise to about 15% when they're done with the stock buyback stake in Sotheby's, that makes them the single largest shareholder, larger than uh, the activist investor, Dan Loeb, uh, and they negotiated a three-year standstill. So they've agreed that their, you know, they, their ownership is now to learn, to watch, to participate, not to look for the opportunity to acquire the rest of the, the, the company. So that gives them 
breathing room. I don't know whether that's, you know, I'm not a, uh, an investment manager. I don't know whether that's good or bad for the stock and all, or, but it does mean there's sort of a defined uh, a period of time. And one presumes, given what the um, Mercury Group has done with Philips, that they are long-term uh, holders of that co uh, company. Uh, and, you know, uh, certainly uh, Mr. Pinot has been you know, steadfast in his ownership of uh, uh, Christie's. But I think no one will be shocked to wake up any given morning and finding out that one might be uh, for, for sale. Any question in the audience, Noah? You wanna, I'll come to you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I wonder if um, what what you're talking about is that um, if we can see some of these recent Sotheby's acquisitions as seen in sort of historical context as, as part of a continuum of, continuum of moves that Sotheby's has made over the years, going back to the late great uh, Al Taubman, in terms of when, when Taubman kind of breached um, the divide uh, of going wholesale to retail, right? Um, and, and since that time, we've seen sort of, th there's been a great battle royale that's gone on, Sotheby's versus Christie's, Christie's versus Sotheby's. We've, it's been sort of like a World War I battling over 10 yards of turf uh, each year and year out, right? And then a number of maybe say five, six years ago, um, um, the, both houses decided, hey, you know, why, why are we fighting over 50% of the market? We're killing each other. Why don't we go after that 50%, meaning the dealer side of the market? And so the, the, this idea that, well, sure, let's try to get market share for the auction side because that's been our meat and potato business in 1766 and 1744, respectively. Um, but let's go after that, that other, that private side of the market. And so in a sense, it's sort of, you can sort of see it as, it's like to, to sort of harken back to, to Professor Chagnon Burke's point about, in a sense, this homogenization of the market, whether it's dealers all showing similar property in Miami or wherever, um, or whether it's auction houses acting like dealers and dealers acting like auction houses and this whole, this whole big mess is like, no, there's no distinction anymore between any of us. Well, I mean, you know, the, the blurring going of the back line. to Sotheby's in earlier times, they had acquired um, the Andre Emmerich Gallery, not the inventory, but the staff, that was a complete disaster. They acquired Jeffrey Deitch mm -hmm. through another sort of try in the private side. And, um, and of course, Christie's history with contravenison and, you know, having a uh, you know, very smart street-level giant gallery on New Bond Street a block away from Sotheby's, which I'm sure is quite shocking. <laughs> Sotheby's when they've been like, oh, they told the you know, it's not Victoria's Secret, it's um, Christie's or whatever. But I mean, you know, all these attempts, I think you're right in that it's, you know, the quote unquote, you know, an auction house isn't really the correct or proper way to describe what these businesses are. 
there are two things you could see happening. One is you could actually see, given the constraints, especially in London, but you know, you, it's a little bit true here, Rock Center. Uh, it's somewhat true up in uh, York. And by the way, uh, you know, Sotheby's, the thing that started the whole activist takeover was the real estate. Uh, one of the activists just said, please sell that real estate and give me the money and I'll go away. It's a little more complex than that, but is, uh, that was at the heart of it. And they still haven't sold that real estate, though that could happen any day for a bunch of different reasons. No, they're not. They're not. But you could easily see the, the sort of Hong Kong uh, uh, model taking place in New York and or London, where instead of maintaining a big facility, they are able to present, you know, thousand objects for people to see in a week before a sale uh, in a more flexible space in a different sort of environment and sort of structure their business slightly differently uh, that way. I, I, I would also say I think the, what you're seeing about them getting into the dealing business, you've already seen it. It's just coming in the form of third-party guarantees and that the way that they're effectively dealing is to say, to a seller, look, you know, I know you want this number, and I think we might be able to get you more, but I can arrange for there to be a buyer so you're satisfied, and still give you the opportunity to see if there's anyone else out there. That's effectively making a deal, uh, and then offering a public sort of go-see uh, option. So I, I think that's somehow, you, you, your, your uh, World War I metaphor is perfect. You don't you don't end up breaking into the next trenches and breaking out with your cavalry. You end up going around the Maginot line with uh, you know, the tanks. It's something totally new and different that ends up transforming these kinds of stalemates. Judd, what you were talking about in terms of the dealers and how they failed miserably, both auction houses actually, in appropriating galleries. What's interesting is that Sotheby's now has this S2 gallery yeah. of the emerging market. And my question to you is that those other failures, even just 10 years ago with Haunch of Venison, was a time when the market was perhaps less global, that there was this kind of belief that you could not introduce emerging artists within the auction house. And it was a little bit more traditional in the way the system worked, in the way of an artist was validated, let's say. And now with so many more global collectors that aren't necessarily schooled in that kind of tradition, do you think that there is kind of opportunity for the gallery within the auction house, especially when you think of Hong Kong or China, where there isn't that kind of distinction um, of the auction houses validating? Because I just noticed, I am not an expert on this or on Sotheby's, but when I went to S2, it seemed like they were bringing their collectors from the big sales in to buy the young artists as a way to in-house validate the emerging artists that they were showing. That's just my own little opinion and analysis. But it's just kind of interesting when you see the markets shift, if the way we think things have to be done. Or just, you know, Sotheby's, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, like superstar kind of, um, he curated a show at Sotheby's, yeah. sort of like a rap hip hop. Drake. Drake. Thank you, Joey. <laughs> um, 
But uh, the thing I was thinking of just when you were talking was, um, yeah, it's been in the works for a long time because at one point at Maastricht, um, Christie's uh, mm. snuck in under the guise of this, I think it was called King Street Galleries or something <laughs> like that. It was like the early haunch of venison. Um, and there was a huge uproar about it, but Christie said, you know, if you don't let us in, we're going to open a tent across, you know, the river or whatever in Maastricht. God knows where they would put it. But, um, and I remember, because I've gone there a bunch of times to the Tefa Fair, that they had Adrian Genny, who at the time was, I don't know, probably in his early 30s, maybe, and paintings at 40,000 euros. And he was in the stand, like, you know, waiting to, you know, here, meet our young artist. <laughs> and then you think, yeah, that, you know, that was, uh... but anyway, that, you know, I think all those definitions, classifications, categories, it's all sort of, you know, up for grabs in the sense that, you know, the houses, the galleries, the art fairs, they're all trying to maximize or you know, eke out some sort of profit from this you know very expensive you know way of doing business. I do think it's the um, structure of the auction house being a corporation makes it very hard for them to promote and deal with individual artists. I mean, artists are needy people. The, the, you end up investing a lot in a bunch of them who go nowhere. Someone has to, you know, take on all their problems, hear about their financial worries, hear their complaints, uh, and all. That's not something an auction house is well equipped to do. They're better equipped for their specialists to say, oh, there's a waiting list for Adrian Genny. I know where we can get one. And, uh, you know, I think we can uh, really make a splash uh, at the beginning of the sale. So I think it, you know, you look at the, the uh, you know, I guess the uh, Richter was the last one we really saw them take from sort of zero to uh, a million or 100 million, whatever you want the, the number to be. Uh, in the rest of it, it's happened in smaller places. You know, uh, uh, you, uh, Veronique, you would want to talk about the African-American yes, market. Yes, I want to. I was thinking about Jack Shaneman's yes. ability with a number of different artists to really sort of stick with it and all. But uh, if you think about what Shaneman has done with Barclay Hendricks in tandem with what Swan has done with the African-American market, often with these significant Barclay mm -hmm. Hendricks uh, sales. Now, these numbers are almost not worth paying attention to if you're Sotheby's or Christie's. Uh, you know, they're much lower, but th those are successfully sticking with it, building a market and all. And, and I think somehow it's better done by individuals. There, there's a big tension in the art market between the powerful individual, whether it's a collector or it's these families that own a lot of uh, art, and the auction house, and there's a de deal-making asymmetry. You know, in an auction house, everyone has a boss. I mean, it's a company. Everyone has a boss. You're dealing with some of these big families. They can make it, or a big hedge fund collector, or you know, any of a number of uh, uh, people. They can make a decision instantly. 
they report only to themselves, uh, and they're usually very practiced in that kind of high stakes, um, you know, game. So it doesn't really, you know, bother them to to do that. So, the, so it's this odd position that these companies are in, trying to either get work from or make deals with people who are just in a superior position uh, 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 to them by the nature of experience, you know, who they report to and uh, and so on. So I, I think there's there, you know, there's almost like a wall around some of the things that the auction houses can do, can get into uh, that way. And, and if we are going back to what Judd was talking about, this idea of a maybe a quieter, more private people wanting to be less in the public in the public view, then that what you're saying will be verified, meaning that people may actually want to move away from, want to continue working with private cell advisor and maybe also uh, dealers rather than you know being in in the big arena of the of the big evening sales. I know that there was a lot of confusion um, when Christie's was developing its private sales, and Dominique Levy, who's like in few years has become on her own this you know, mm. giant presence in the um, secondary market uh, privately. But where suddenly these um, specialists who were getting their salaries from Christie's were suddenly getting percentages Com based yeah. on commissions of making sales of paintings. And, you know, I mean, would you rather have this go to auction where you're getting your X amount or would you mm -hmm. rather sell it privately? And it caused just, it was like a, a war that was going yeah. on. And now I think that's all been sorted sort out. Of sorted out. But there's a lot of, um, you know, it, you know, maybe that's going to be the next phase where an auction house will acquire a major gallery and just it becomes a subsidiary like Hunter Benison was. And, um, which you know they were supposedly banned from certain of the mm -hmm. art fairs, and I mean it. You know, it's, um, I don't. I don't think there's any. I think it's it's a moving target right now. So as we don't have really a crystal ball, I will uh, want to thank our panelists. I have many more questions, but unfortunately we're kind of uh, running a little bit out of time. So um, I just want to. Give them a big round of applause. This concludes part one of the panel discussion. This has been a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, sponsored by Christie's Education New York, where art history meets the art market. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 